0: We're now going to move into our uh, question-and-answer period. Tom has talked uh, about farmers' markets and local food production, and although he hasn't told us that much about the research he was doing last summer, that means you get to invite him back again to talk more about that another time if you don't ask him questions during the session. I'm going to invite you to, when you ask your questions, to step up to the mic, and we have one on this side, and that's it. Uh, please state your name, uh, keep your comments brief, try to get hone in on the question, uh, and try to focus on just one question in your period. Uh, and then if you would actually return to your seat as Tom proceeds to answer, that would be terrific. Um, and we're going to ask you to refrain from just general questions at the table. So if you do have a question to ask, do come up to the mic to ask it. So I think that's all I have to say. So I'm going to welcome back Dr. Tom Johnson. Please.
1: My name is Henning Mundl. Thank you for your presentation, Tom. My question concerns, do you know yourself or of research done in the area of not food quality to draw customers to the farmer's market, but perhaps the social aspects or the farmer's market as a medium for community building? Uh, Interaction with the vendors by the customers, And, for example, our family, we like to come there for Saturday morning for breakfast and informally meeting with our friends. Some of them are here uh, without having to do big invitations and so on. And so the social aspect of a farmer's market, do you, uh, do you have some comments on that, please? Uh, actually, uh, I do, which is a, a good thing. When we talk about industrialized agriculture and agriculture that is carried out now increasingly at a globalized scale. We conceptualize that phenomenon as uh, agriculture having been, believe it or not, the word is disembedded. What that really means is that production and consumption take place in two spatially disparate regions. Uh, And that is a contrast with a production system that is, not surprisingly, referred to as embedded, and that's where production and consumption take place more or less in the same region. Uh, There are several researchers who are looking at the relationship between uh, relocalization of food, re-embeddedness of production, and its relationship to the broader community. Uh, Several British researchers have looked at that Uh, in uh, Canada... Uh, a researcher at uh, Laurier named Rob Fagan has looked at that question in the context of the Brantford Farmers Market, and long story short, the story on that uh, is is out. We don't know yet. We don't know. We know the uh, that there is a uh, a subset of people who regularly go and attend uh, farmers markets. Uh, uh, for the social aspect of that. It's something that they do on a regular basis. But we also know that, uh, at least based... And this comes from some of my own research last fall as well, that that doesn't represent uh, a... It represents a, a, a substantial proportion of the visitors, but it doesn't describe the motivation of a large majority so it's there as an underlying factor for people, and uh, but not for everyone. One of the other questions that is uh, being examined in the research literature right now has to do with the link between the relocalization of food and the revitalization of small-scale agriculture. Uh, again, the jury on that question is out. We don't really know what... Uh, what the relationship is yet there are much more uh, many more case studies need to be done but certainly people are, are, are looking at that particular question and again it's some of the British geographers who are, are leading the way uh, in this work I hope that answers your question
2: Hi Tom uh, good talk very interesting stuff my name is Mark Sandylands. Uh, I have a couple of questions. One, uh, as, as uh, my father used to say, I'll bite. Uh, tell us about the 16-mile-an-hour tomato, or is it kilometer-an-hour tomato? The second question I have is, is more broad-reaching. Uh, today's paper had some uh, information uh, of a speech given by Sheila Fraser, who's stepping down. And One of the things she talked about is the need for governments to plan 75 years into the future. Perhaps 75 years from now, the oil will have run out and we'll be uh, in the situation that, for example, Cuba was in in the early 1990s when they lost the support of the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. Um, Is anybody thinking about the possibility of uh, what will happen for food production, when the oil runs out, because we're so heavily dependent on it, uh, and the the knowledge that is resides in the people who are farming, if we get if we lose them all, what kind of fix will we be in?
1: Okay, <laughs> that enough. I'm going to start with a 13 mile an hour tomato because it's a really good story, I think. You may remember uh, decades ago when uh, there was a great labor unrest amongst agricultural workers in California. I certainly remember, uh, you know, in support of uh, the California Workers' Cause that our household uh, uh, boycotted California grapes. It was our little bit. Well... In response to uh, labor issues, not the least of which was um, uh, increasing cost of labor, the tomato producers asked the agricultural engineers at the University of California, Davis, to build them a tomato harvester so they would become less reliant on labor. And the tomato harvester was very successful. The problem is the tomatoes that they're growing at the time didn't work very well with the tomato harvester because the terminal velocity of a tomato dropping into an empty bin from a conveyor belt is 13 miles an hour (laughs) so of course the world is driven by the interests of engineers of course Um, and so what happened was um, the engineers went to the agronomists at UC Davis and they said please build us a tomato that can withstand a terminal velocity of 13 miles an hour and they did. The, the plant breeders were incredibly successful, and this is in the days before genetic engineering and so on. And so they built a 13-mile-an-hour tomato. The problem is uh, it doesn't taste much like a tomato, in my view. And, and I, I do know that my taste buds are, I'm losing them. And the reason that it doesn't is because it has such a thick skin, Right, we've all we all we've been in the industrial restaurants and had tomato and you know put try to drive into it with a fork and have it go across the the table. Well, that's the story of the thirteen mile an hour tomato. It is a great tomato to be harvested. It lasts. It can be transported over over great distances. It's harvested green, by the way, and then uh, is ripened in uh, an atmospheric environment with a variety of. Um, uh, this is post harvest physiologists work on this kind of stuff same way we do with with uh, with uh, apples now um, and uh, it has a shelf life that uh, is pretty pretty much up there uh, along with your good old fashioned iceberg lettuce. Um, seventy five years from now I remember when Dave Hancock was running for the leadership of the uh, conservatives here and uh, in um, uh, in preparation for that, he released a paper that was called the, the, "The End of Conventional Oil," and that was about ten years ago. And uh, he said, uh, in about twenty-five years, we're going to we're not going to have any more that easy to get at stuff, uh, and so we're going to be relying increasingly on uh, other sources for our fossil fuels. So we've known for a long time that you know we're I mean we're riding the gravy train here in Alberta. Uh, the last of the cheap energy economy. Uh, where our, our economy is completely out of sync with the economies of many other Western industrial countries. Uh, we're going to ride that horse right down to the, to the end of the finish line and hopefully we've got some money in the bank uh, to do something when we run out. Um, you would be absolutely astonished if, uh, and I'm sorry I don't have these data, if I were to show you the energy required the energy that is embedded in, say, um, you know, your typical eight-ounce ribeye steak, and I'm not talking about simply the energy involved in the conveyance of water. I'm talking about the energy involved in the crops uh, that are produced. Uh, nitrogen, as as uh, we all know, is a, uh, is a is a mainstay of modern uh, commercial uh, agriculture. It's an incredibly energy-consumptive uh, industrial fertilizer. Uh, to produce. Um, 75 years out, let's hope we learn from the experiment that's going on right now uh, in uh, Cuba because they uh, are in fact as a speaker here last week I believe uh, here in town was talking about uh, and we've known about that for um, you know a, a long time. can't remember your third question oh, okay. I thought there were three. Oh, is there any research going on? Absolutely. And
2: the knowledge base of um,
1: people who know how to farm nowadays? Well, the intergenerational transfer of knowledge is always an issue. It doesn't matter if we're talking about agriculture or if we're talking about um, a government or an industrial sector. Uh, it's obviously an issue in technology transfer, as the Alberta government calls it, is um, is uh, very, very high on their radar screen. And uh, a lot of attention is being paid to capturing, uh, capturing the knowledge of experts and packaging it in, in, in a way that can be conveyed um, uh, for, uh, for, for people when they're no longer around.
2: Um, thanks a lot, Tom, for your address today. My name is Austin Fennell. I'd like to ask a question that has to do with population and food supply. You would know as a geographer something about what we can expect in two or three generations for population increase in the world. My understanding is something in two or three generations will be up to 9 billion people in the world. What does this mean in terms of food supply? And if that isn't the issue, that's just going to encourage more industrial production of food.
1: Would you like to comment on the nature of that problem? Um, What we do know is that Um, while population is continuing to increase on a global scale, it is increasing at a decreasing rate. That takes us all back to Economics 101, doesn't it? You know, marginal change. So the good news is that we do know from the models that the World Watch Institute, FAO, the UN uh, put out, is that the human population will peak out at, and I think the number is, I'm not going to quote it, but I think it's about what you said, there are, are are various schools of thought on on this issue, and the schools of thought are uh, often influenced uh, by factors beyond the, the debate and beyond the facts. So, for example, if if you believe the argument put forward by the uh, agri-food companies and in particular the uh, genetic engineering Uh, companies. Uh, We need to embrace this new gene revolution uh, in a big way. It's the only way that we're going to be able to produce enough food to uh, feed uh, the, the, the growing population. Well, that may or may not be the case. But the real issue, I think, is just because you can grow enough of it doesn't mean that people are going to have that food to eat. Many of the arguments that are made for the gene revolution were arguments that were made for the green revolution of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. We're producing more food than ever before, although the rate of increase is declining in terms of yield increases. We're producing more food than ever before, and yet we have larger and larger uh, percentages of the human population that are undernourished, malnourished, have periodic seasonal um, uh, seasonal um, uh, food shortages. So the scientists are great at doing the science; they're very good at that. They're absolutely lousy at the social science. So the issue is not whether or not we can produce enough food and fiber. I don't think anybody questions that. Even if we don't embrace in a big way a gene technology, genetic engineering technology, it would mean a you know, remarkable differences in our food consumption patterns and a, a redistribution. But producing enough food, in my, in, in my view, and as I read the literature on this, is not the critical issue. It's not the most important issue. The questions surround the distribution of food. And much of that, uh, at the core of those questions, has to do with access uh, access to capital, access to the technology uh, and, and so I don't think that producing more... Well, you know, you don't solve water shortages by building more dams. In fact, we know that. Uh, the day after... Here's another example of, you know, chasing the, uh, supply problems by building more supply. They closed the Auckland Harbour Bridge in the 1960s because it was at 110% capacity. They put wings on either side Two days after they reopened the Auckland Harbour Bridge, it was at 110% capacity. You don't solve supply problems by building more supply because that's not at the core of the issue in many cases.
3: Hello, Tom. I want to thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Francis Schultz. And I want to draw us back to the issue of farmers' markets and what I consider to be a real value. Uh, Number one, I see what's happening at the Lethbridge farmers' market is an increase in the number of local producers bringing their product in, dealing directly with the consumer. And you can talk to them. You can find out how their animals are raised. So you know that, for example, the grass-fed beef... The cow distributes its own manure for most of the year. Number two, it actually harvests a lot of its food when it's out grazing, as compared to the 16,000 head feedlot that is beside us, where we go through weeks and weeks of the manure being hauled, every five minutes a truck going by. We go through weeks of forage being harvested and brought to the feedlot with, with, again, trucks every few minutes. And the damage, the additional damage just to the infrastructure of the county of Lethbridge on the roads by this type of production of food is absolutely horrendous. And, and what happens is that the taxpayers pick up the tab for the damage that is done, not the feedlots, because they don't pay any more taxes than a grain farm on the same acreage. Um, and, 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 and is this kind of, of issue being also uh, considered in all of, all of the data that's being collected?
1: To bring your, your, your comments down to the core conceptual issue here, what you're really talking about is some kind of full-cost accounting framework. And the answer to that question is, yeah, there are people working on that. Um, the, uh, the information that I shared with you about um, the, um, uh, the, the low energy costs associated with eating uh, New Zealand pastoral products, for example... Versus similar products produced here in Canada, that was based on some research done by uh, researchers at Lincoln College in uh, Canterbury, New Zealand. Um, there was a um, an article published in the Economist, 2008, in December, December 7th, I believe, in the Economist that looked at at this at this particular issue, um, and I mean, while some of us might have issues with the Economist as a, as a you know as a, as a publication and, and their you know editorial stances on things. Um, I, I think from a uh, from an objective uh, scientific perspective, these are exactly the kind of questions that need to be asked, and they are being asked. Um, I mean, it's 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 often you're, at, at the core you're talking about externalities, you're talking about the costs. Uh, associated with a particular activity that are not factored into the transaction between the, the customer and the producer. the costs are born uh, are borne by the unconsenting third party. It's, it's, a, it's a classic you know, go all the way back to Adam Smith. he knew about he knew about externalities and not being taken into account in free markets.
4: Hi, my name is Debbie Gregorash. Um, <clears> to <throat> tell me if any of this sounds too far out for you. Uh, I've always thought that the further from nature we do our business, um, the further from nature we get, the more trouble humanity seems to get into. And secondly, uh, pick any animal in the world, it eats locally. And if the food isn't there, well, they have to go looking for it. But basically, all animals... Um, Eat locally. (coughs) Um, And uh, agriculture, I think agriculture is the last sort of uh, uh, business or venture to be industrialized. And I think that it will be the first one to be de-industrialized. And part of that might be because of um, uh, peak oil. Uh, But (coughs) going back to eating locally and what you said about um, third world countries feeding themselves I think that's what they have to do they have to feed themselves. It's not up to us to produce the food to ship it around the world to them. We have to give them the means to produce their own food however we can do that it might be might have to be politically who knows but uh, and also not to be dumping um, cheap produce and, and uh, grains etc into countries whose uh, peasants produce this food for local consumption and then they're uh, run out of business because they can't compete with the cheap food that's being imported. You can talk about any or all.
1: (laughs) How much time do we have? Um, If you think about a farm production decision, it's, uh, it's really a decision about allocating scarce resources amongst competing demands. And those resources are allocated in accordance with a variety of different kinds of signals. You have signals that come from the marketplace. And if, you, if those signals are obscured or blurred, then producers are going to allocate their resources growing something that consumers don't want. So uh, prior to the great upheaval in New Zealand in the 1980s, uh, uh, pastoral producers were protected from uh, market signals through something called minimum supplementary payments. It was a kind of a Keynesian approach to smoothing payments. Well, what happened there was they continued, even though consumer demand for certain pastoral products, in particular fat lambs, so these are lamb carcasses with very high levels of fat on them, started to decline because people's tastes changed. That signal was never sent to the producers through the, through the marketplace because those signals were obscured. And they continued to produce fat lambs for uh, almost a decade after the market for fat lambs went completely, completely the way of the buffalo, so to speak. One of the other sorts of signals that we get are biophysical signals. Let me tell you another story. This comes from research done by a colleague of mine at the University of Guelph, John Smithers. John looked at something that he called the, the agroclimatic signature in uh, cropping decisions. This was for his PhD thesis. And so what he did is he looked at census data, which at that time was reliable.
4: <laughs>
1: and... Um, he then compared the census data with, uh, with information on agroclimatic trends. And what he found is during the 40s and the 50s and the 60s, there was a pretty strong, what he called, a, a signature, or an, a statistical association. But then after the 1971 census of agriculture, that signature got fuzzy. It became increasingly difficult for him to detect that relationship. The only difference, the only thing, so something obviously inserted itself into the system to desensitize farmers from that biophysical signal. What was it? Crop insurance. So farmers can now insulate themselves to some extent, reduce the risk associated with with, uh, climatic perturbations, by insuring themselves against that risk, which desensitizes the production decision, the resource allocation decision, from the biophysical environment. There's a decoupling that takes place. Now, crop insurance seemed like a really good idea at the time. And I dare say there are many farmers today that think crop insurance is a really good idea. But what we might have inadvertently done was produce a system... That is actually more vulnerable now to climate change because there is there is a financial cap on the capacity of the system to pay out. And what happens if we pass that threshold, and the system is no longer sensitive to those to those signals? So that's an example of uh, when you move further from nature, I think, with a particular you know with a, a particular story.
0: If I can just, jump in. if I could just jump in, we are getting close to our time, so we've got one more person at the mic. If it's a short question, Bev, we can do it. And I'm sorry if I haven't let you finish off your comments. Perhaps you can have a little more of a chat with the previous uh, person who asked the question at the end. Is that all right? So, Bev.
5: Hi, Tom. <clears throat> I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thank you for your talk. Um, My husband and I are both graduates of the University of California at Davis, Mm. so I know about the 13-mile-an-hour horrible tomato. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't taste like anything. It's been said that a country that is not self-sufficient in food is at the mercy of the world. Um, I think NAFTA has proved that for Canada. I can remember when the okanagan valley was self sufficient was <laughs> producing producing beautiful fruits for uh, um, for all of western western Canada, and now because of nafta they 've had to go to uh, wa- grape and wine production. Um, many other productions have been also destroyed under nafta so to me, it seems like this whole thing is a matter of political will, and if people are marching off to the farmers markets and And going to local markets because they want good food and local food, great, good on you, because we're not going to get rid of the governments we have now. Sorry,
0: um, your question? I'm just. My question's coming.
5: So um, I'm just wondering why can't we get rid of the Canadian imported farm workers and replace them with local workers who, when we have unemployment in Canada?
1: If uh, if we were willing as consumers to pay more for food and farmers would then be able to compete more effectively for labor uh, with uh, their competitors, whether it's McDonald's or whatever, uh, then we would not need a foreign worker program. The fact of the matter is there are a number of areas in our economy where we have uh, significant labor shortages, and we're not—people uh, are, are, are either unwilling um, or, or unable to, to fill those jobs. Uh, those jobs—I I remember, wasn't that long ago at the university when we uh, when we started going to uh, international searches for for faculty members right out of the blocks because there simply weren't enough in the pool of Canadian PhDs being produced. So, you know, that's a labor market issue. And um, uh, I I think that if if there were enough people who were willing to uh, work in those circumstances for what farmers are able to pay them, then we wouldn't have to import labor.
0: Thank you very much, Tom, for your comments. I have been sitting here looking at the audience and I'm just curious how many people might be first-time attenders at Sackpaw. I think there may be a few. Welcome especially to you. Don't be shy. Welcome especially to you. Um, I, the, the notion of where our food is coming from. Yeah. Well, We hope he's going to come back and talk about his, his research on our local farmer's market. Um, but A special thank you for your attendance. I think there is a lot of interest indeed in local food production and food production in whatever means and concerns about that. If you've got ideas for future topics related to that or to other things, there's actually a suggestion box, I believe. On the door on the way out, so you could add those uh, to that. And I do hope you'll consider coming back to um, more of these questions, these presentations, and chances to engage with various speakers and various topics. So, will you please join me in a particularly strong round of applause for Dr. Tom Johnston from the University of Lethbridge? Thank you.